welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every week, decisions are made across Maine that affect the future of our environments. Lawmakers in Augusta propose or debate new bills. Mainers speak up on proposals made by corporations or state agencies. Clean energy projects are launched, or communities take action to address threats to clean air or water or open spaces that they cherish. Since 1959, NRCM has been on the front lines, tracking these developments and tapping into the power of Maine people, science, and the law. NRCM does this to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. So every two weeks, we'll sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories you need to know about and what lies ahead. Thank you for listening as we share our view from the front lines. As the world's leaders wrap up the COP26 UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, climate change is on everybody's mind. And here in Maine, there continues to be wall-to-wall coverage of climate in the media as well. We were excited to see that Maine public is kicking off a year-long reporting project on climate change called, they're calling Climate Driven. And I just saw that News Center Maine is running a special this Friday, November 2nd, featuring their meteorologists um, and that's called Maine's Changing Climate. So you would tune into that or find it online, I'm sure, but we're excited about that coverage. And so in this episode, we wanted to check in once again with NRCM's Climate and Clean Energy Director, Jack Shapiro, and talk all things Maine and climate change. Welcome again, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm your host, Colin Durant. And before we dig into all things climate with Jack, uh, we'd be remiss, of course, not to highlight the results of the most recent referendum election um, in a stunning rebuke of CMP and its political tactics. An overwhelming majority of uh, Maine voters delivered uh, yet another devastating blow to CMP's proposed transmission line. Um, the results were, by all by all marks, a landslide. Nearly 60 percent of Mainers statewide voted to voted to, for question one, which would suspend the CMP corridor. That's a majority of voters in 15 of Maine, 16 counties. And I mean, it was wild. CMP even lost in places like Lewiston and towns in Southern Maine that, that, that I think pundits thought that they, or that they were certainly trying to win in. Um, so it was a clear message from voters and from Maine people. But of course, CMP doesn't care about that. Uh, the morning after this resounding rebuke, CMP was once again uh, continuing its construction work, showing their disrespect for Maine people. Um, NRCM responded right away. We called on DEP to immediately suspend their permit. We're also urging Massachusetts officials to choose an alternative project. Um, and we'll, uh, we're planning to break that all down in a little more detail in a future episode with, with Pete. Um, but for now, Jack, I just wanted to get your perspective on one of the more common takes that's coming out of these results. Lots of pundits are weighing in, and they're saying that the rebuke of the CMP corridor threatens progress on clean energy. I know we believe it's actually the opposite. Um, the vote has clear lessons for how we actually should be approaching the clean energy transition. So can you just tell us a little bit more, more about that, how, how we see you know, the takeaways from this, from, from this vote? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Con. Yeah, I, I mean, this referendum was pretty clearly about frustration and mistrust of CMP, um, not about being opposed to clean energy or, or even to transmission lines. You know, just as an example, 
the legislature earlier this year uh, passed a bill to build a new transmission line to connect renewable projects in Arista County. And, and we're supporting that effort. But stepping back a bit, you know, it's, it's clear we need to decarbonize our electricity supply. That means building more clean energy and it means improving the transmission and distribution infrastructure that we need. But we have to build that infrastructure with real public input. We, there has to be honest efforts to minimize impacts on our forests and our wildlife. And we have to make sure that it results in real reductions in carbon emissions. And that is just not the case with the CMP corridor. And so we, we also have to really make sure not to take the wrong lessons uh, from this. You know, this corridor is a fatally flawed project and CMP cut corners left and right with the process, which is, which is why in addition to this referendum, the project is tied up in court and there's upcoming hearings at DEP on revoking their permit. You know, this, this project got picked by Massachusetts as the least cost project. Um, they didn't choose it based on verifiable greenhouse gas emissions reductions or consider the um, other impacts or, or other risks that came along with it. So what we should learn is that we need to do this right. We need to work on ways to do strategic long-term planning for transmission distribution. We need to make interconnecting renewables easier and faster, which is a place where CMP has fallen on its face in, in the past year or so. And we need to co-locate this infrastructure with, with existing uh, uh, stuff wherever possible and, and bring in environmental and other um, priorities as, as well. If we're gonna build projects that are durable, avoid this kind of backlash and, and earn public support and trust. What we're seeing with this project is what it looks like when we cut corners. Uh, we see legal fights, a ton of wasted money on frankly embarrassing election ads and tactics and we end up no further along um, on building the infrastructure we need than when we started. So the, the idea that this is an anti-clean energy vote or anti-transmission is just ridiculous subject changing by CMP. We want new transmission lines, we want new grid investment, but you know, this, this really, uh, you know, CMP really blew it on this one. Yeah, that's great. That's a super helpful perspective, Jack. And I know you and other member of our climate team, Rebecca, are working on putting down some of this and maybe a blog or something we'll post. So be sure to look out for our listeners, be sure to look out for that. But thanks again for that perspective, Jack. Um, and I think that's such an important people a point for people to understand about the outcome of this vote and what it meant. Um, let's just move to COP26, that UN Climate Summit, real quick. Jack, I'm curious if you can share, you know, one or two quick observations from the negotiations that are happening from your perspective. You know, how's it going? What's ha what's happening there? Yeah, well, there's been a lot of attention on on this meeting, and and for background, it's it's COP26 because it's the 26th international meeting of uh, in this series of negotiations that go back several decades. Some folks may have heard of the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, and you know that's all part of the same ongoing set of negotiations. The, the big one, of course, is the, is the Paris Agreement, which was, which, was, uh, which was in 2015. And that was really a landmark uh, in these negotiations because it was the first time that every country in the world had agreed to reduce carbon pollution, including both developed and developing countries. And the way that the Paris Agreement was structured is that it was based on voluntary pledges from, from every country, based on commitments that would ratchet up over time. And they agreed to assess those pledges uh, and increase them in five years after the Paris Agreement. 
Now, five years after Paris was last year in the height of the pandemic. So, so this meeting is really that five-year stock take. And a lot of things have happened since Paris. Um, clean energy costs, solar and wind have continued to plummet. Battery costs as well. Electric vehicles have, have become really real. Um, they're, they're significant parts of the market now. The manufacturers, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, are making you know, billion, multi-billion dollar investments. And it's also become really clear that climate change is here now. Um, we've seen that in America with the fires in the West and record-breaking storms like Hurricane Harvey in Houston, where they got 50 inches of rain. But it's also happening around the world um, in, in ways that can't be ignored. Um, Superstorms like Haiyan in the Pacific um, that brought tornado level wind speeds to the Philippines across a hurricane you know, sized part of the country. Wildfires across thousands of miles of Siberia, the first ever climate induced famine actually happening right now in Madagascar. And the science behind it has also gotten very real. Um, the, the latest science uh, is showing not only that climate impacts are here now, but that allowing two degrees sea of warming, what was generally considered quote unquote safe, actually comes with really devastating consequences for millions and millions of people. So that's all pretty dark, but there's also some evidence that the actions we're taking are making some of the most dire predict predictions much less likely to happen. Now, we shouldn't rest on our laurels. Those extra bad projections are stuff like 180 degree outdoor summer temperatures in big parts of the world. So there's a lot of outcomes between here and there that we, that we still need to avoid. But it should, you know, these, this new research also should serve as proof that our actions, policies, and plans like Maine's Climate Action Plan really do matter and, and really do make a difference. Um, so we've seen uh, some things come out of uh, Glasgow already around uh, methane, around uh, climate finance. Um, but um, but I'm I'm hopeful that we'll see uh, some some more ambitious uh, uh, things coming out as the as the um, conference wraps up as well. Here here. Well, you talk about those policies uh, here in Maine. So let's shift gears to to Maine. Move to Maine. And um, I know NRCM, your team recently weighed in on a new rule that's being proposed by the Maine DEP uh, to transition to zero emission trucks and buses. It's called the ACT rule. Uh, can you tell us what ACT actually stands for uh, and why we think that's so important for Maine to take action on. Yeah, absolutely. And other states, sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and this, is a, this is a policy that a number of states are, uh, are putting in place. Uh, uh, ACT stands for Advanced Clean Trucks. Um, and it'll be, it it'll be no secret to, to listeners that uh, transportation is 54% is of our state's climate pollution. Uh, it's the biggest single sector. And medium and heavy duty vehicles are 27% of that. Basically, even though there aren't that many bigger vehicles relative to how many cars we have in Maine, they make up an outsized proportion of the, of the pollution in this sector. So this policy covers uh, heavy duty trucks, delivery vans, uh, all the way up to, to semi-tractor trailers uh, and includes school buses um, and other transit vehicles as well. It starts in the 2025 model year, requiring manufacturers to um, start with small percentages, but, uh, but sell you know, a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles uh, in the state of Maine 
across these segments. And it's, it's pretty flexible. They can you know, sell a little bit more of one kind of vehicle um, as they ramp up production and, and development in others. But overall, it's projected to reduce carbon emissions by about 12%, uh, which is pretty significant. But what this policy is really about is requiring manufacturers to provide clean choices uh, in Maine. Uh, for Maine people, for businesses, uh, cities, school districts, and fleet managers. Um, we know that there's interest in making this transition to uh, zero emission vehicles and getting rid of that pollution and saving money, um, but we need to require the manufacturers to provide those vehicles for, uh, for sale in Maine. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, key for meeting Maine's climate goals, as with a lot of climate solutions, climate actions, there's a lot of other benefits, actually. So let's just quickly talk about those. Um, those other benefits. Fossil fuel trucks are really dirty, they're bad for our health. And so what are some of the health and economic impacts um, that you see from, from the, you know, that could be an outcome from adopting this rule? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so heavy trucks and, you know, a lot of them are uh, diesel powered and, you know, you can sort of see those, that, that, those plumes of diesel exhaust as, a, as some of these big trucks, you know, start off from a red light uh, or, or, or something like that. You know, so on top of carbon pollution, there's a lot of other kinds of pollution that's associated with, with these heavier vehicles. Um, two in particular, uh, one is nitrous oxides or NOx as it's known in the biz uh, <laughs> and uh, fine particulate pollution, um, which is sort of technically PM 2.5 is what they, they call it. And 2.5 is, is a reference to the size of the particles. It's sort of like soot. And NOx is, is a precursor to ground level ozone. Um, which, you know, ozone up in the stratosphere is, is good. It protects us from ultraviolet rays. Having ozone on the ground is, is, uh, can be really harmful for, for people's health. It can cause lung damage. Um, it can uh, cause asthma attacks. Um, and PM 2.5 is, is, is really dangerous. There's, there's sort of no safe uh, level of exposure. It sort of causes health impacts at, at, uh, um, in any amount because it's so small that it actually can enter the bloodstream through our, through our lungs. And it's, it's linked to things like um, uh, heart attacks and strokes and, and adverse birth impacts. And it's really, really nasty stuff. So reducing those uh, kinds of pollution as well is, is really, really important. And it's also particularly important from an, from an equity perspective. Um, the impacts of pollution, as, as we know, don't impact everyone across Maine or across the country or across the world, it doesn't impact everyone equally. Um, people who are uh, low-income folks, people with uh, existing health conditions, um, communities of color, um, economically disadvantaged uh, uh, communities and, and families, there's a, there's a link between greater exposure to, to pollution, um, which, which sort of compounds all these things together. Um, so alleviating some of these, uh, these you know, health impacts and, and pollution, especially since some of this transportation infrastructure, highways, um, uh, ports, other, other areas where there's a lot of sort of truck traffic, um, these, are, these tend to be cited in, in lower income communities and communities of color. So this is gonna have a really uh, big and important impact on addressing some of these, uh, these equity concerns as well. But also want to talk uh, about the economic benefits. You know, we've talked about this around electric vehicles, uh, uh, you know, cars. Um, then it, it proves true for trucks and buses as well. 
they have lower fuel and maintenance costs, um, less moving parts, less to break, um, and electric motors are much more efficient in turning you know energy into motion <laughs> than combustion uh, uh, combustion engines. Um, so you know uh, some of you all may have seen um, some folks listening may have seen. Um, uh, in Mount Desert Island, they they uh, are now using Maine's first electric school bus, um, which in addition to making sure that the driver and the students aren't breathing that diesel exhaust, it's also saving about $7,000 a year in reduced fuel and, and maintenance costs. And as battery costs come down, you know, that's going to mean bigger and bigger savings for, for school districts, for, for cities, you know, for businesses. Um, so that's going to be a really important piece of this too, and another reason why we should uh, we should put this into place. That's great. Thanks so much, Jack. And I and I also want to note, um, you know, we've got an action alert going, encouraging folks to submit positive comments to DEP about this. So you could go to nrcm.org and click on the action center, and it should it sh the link should be there. Um, uh, or those of you that are signed to get signed up to get our climate and clean energy updates probably got that action alert as well. So. Um, thanks, thanks for that update on that. The other big climate news we wanted to touch on in this episode, um, just as Congress is sort of inching towards climate action, um, which is good news. And the first step, but it was just the first step I know, was passage of this bipartisan infrastructure plan that delivers billions to Maine to fix outdated infrastructure and invest in our communities. Uh, can you just detail some of what we expect Maine to get, how that helps Maine? Yeah. So like you said, and, and I can't, can't go without reinforcing it, Congress's work is not done. Um, the, the other uh, piece of legislation that's sort of active right now is the um, Build Back Better Act, which has a lot of really critical investments in, in climate and clean energy. Um, so we are still uh, at NRCM working hard to encourage Maine's congressional delegation to, to support that bill as well, which which we think we're going to see, um, you know, hopefully move in the next the next week or so. But on the infrastructure bill, you know, the big chunk of, of money is for transportation, more than a billion dollars coming to Maine. Um, that's good. Uh, our, our transportation infrastructure is, is ranked 37th uh, uh, out of 50 states. Um, and so really can use, uh, can use that investment. Uh, but the bill also includes um, $230 million for public transportation, um, which is also uh, which is also critical. We we underfund public transportation here in Maine. Um, it includes $100 million for broadband, um, $19 million for electric vehicle infrastructure. So uh, those are other you know, key things that are that have important intersections with our climate and clean energy work. Uh, but but as you said, yeah, the biggest part is transportation. Yeah, and on transportation, um, you had a great Twitter thread, which I know we amplified from the NRCM account, um, about how Maine can choose to spend that money wisely. So can you just give us a quick overview of what you said uh, in, in that thread? And maybe I know you're working on inching up that follower count, so you can maybe throw in, <laughs> throw in, your, throw in your Twitter handle, too. So if someone's active on Twitter, they can follow you. Sure. For your takes, yeah. it's uh, it's at at Jack A Shapiro. That's uh, that's where you can find me on Twitter. Or if you, yeah, if you follow um, NRCM Environment as well, you can uh, you can find that retweet. But exactly. the um, 
Yeah. So, you know, like I said, we need transportation investment here in Maine. You know, we have a, we're, we're pretty far down the list in terms of uh, states, you know, ranking high in their transportation infrastructure, whether that's roads or bridges, um, you know, the condition of those roads. But we need to really be smart about how we spend this money. Um, and so we're in, we, we would like Maine to sort of formally adopt what they call a fix it first approach. Um, bad roads are bad for Mainers, um, especially folks in rural Maine who have to do a lot of driving to get uh, to access to services or to their job, um, but also folks um, everywhere who are dealing with congestion, um, you know, or accidents, um, you know, based on uh, uh, some of this, some of this uh, infrastructure that needs updating. You know, I, what, what we saw was that um, Mainers, depending on where you live in the state, pay somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 every year in increased costs from, uh, from, from bad road infrastructure. But it's really important to, to understand that expanding our highways, which, which oftentimes, you know, historically has been what uh, big slugs of infrastructure investment have gone to, is also bad. Um, decades of research has shown um, a phenomenon called induced demand. And what that means is that if you build new highways and new roads, you will actually create traffic that will fill up those roads. Um, there have been examples, uh, you know, the, the examples on this go, go uh, across decades, both in terms of growing and removing highways. You know, some cities have removed, uh, removed highways and not sort of seen the apocalyptic, you know, traffic uh, catastrophes that were sort of predicted. So it, it's really important that we put, uh, you know, induced demand is going to increase the amount of miles that vehicles are traveling. It's going to increase carbon pollution. It's going to increase costs for main drivers. Um, so that's really the last thing that we that we want to do. We need to fix the the roads that we have and not add um, new, you know, new highways, new lanes. The flip side of induced demand is that it doesn't just work for roads. Induced demand also works for other kinds of transportation infrastructure, um, in particular, bike and pedestrian infrastructure. So if we actually invest in um, safe, accessible, uh, usable bike lanes, you will induce people to take to ride their bikes more. And <laughs> now we know that we know that uh, we know that bike and pedestrian um, infrastructure isn't a one-size-fits-all for every community in Maine, um, but there are, um, you know, there are a lot of places uh, in our state um, where we, we really could use uh, this kind of investment. And it's really about the vision that we want from Maine. You know, what if um, your kids could get to practice or to school um, or to their, you know, piano lessons or whatever it is, on a bike and you didn't have to worry if they would be safe on the way there. Um, that means you wouldn't have to give them a ride. We might not see you know, lines of idling cars waiting to pick uh, people up at school um, when you know, maybe kids who are you know, old, enough to, old enough to bike you know, 11, 12, 13 could, you know, could bike safely in a protected bike lane um, back, to their, uh, back to their own neighborhood or over to a friend's house. Um, if that's possible, then, you know, maybe some uh, folks are able to uh, get rid of their second car and all the costs that come with that, the fuel costs, insurance costs, uh, maintenance costs, um, really saving money and sort of putting, putting more uh, resources into the pockets of main families. So 
all that is to say, um, really, we, we, we want to ensure that um, our state's being thoughtful about how um, this, this money gets spent. Um, and, and, and that's going to be an ongoing thing that we're going to be working on here at, at NRCM to try and create that vision of the, of the kind of state and the kind of transportation infrastructure um, that, that works best for, uh, for folks in Maine. Love to hear it. As you know, I, I, I love all things transportation and safe streets. So that was, thanks for breaking that down for us. And I think really clearly explaining the choices we, we have to make. Uh, and, and again, Build Back Better uh, Act's gotta be passed to complement this infrastructure Absolutely. Uh, investment or else you know we're just not gonna see the sort of climate action we need to see. So um, Jack, thanks so much. I know uh, it's wicked busy. You're like, hopefully fingers crossed, got a, got a house. Got, got a house coming for the family, um, but tying up those loose ends. So thanks for taking the time uh, to just share your perspective uh, with our listeners. Um, again, we're really excited to have you, uh, Rebecca and Josh, our, our sort of new, not so new now, but new climate and clean energy team um, on the case for us. You guys are doing such great work. And I just wanted to note for our listeners, uh, be sure to look out for an invite to a webinar that um, Jack and his team are planning on December 2nd, I think, right, Jack, um, uh, to celebrate both the one-year anniversary of Maine's Climate Action Plan, but also, really, I know Jack is interested in hearing, you know, your questions about climate action and climate change and, and are looking forward to having sort of an engaging conversation with our supporters and, and, um, and members about climate change in Maine. So be, be on the lookout for that. Jack, thanks again. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Colin. And yeah, I hope folks are able to join on the second. It should be really fun. And I look forward to, to speaking with and, and meeting many of you. Thanks, cool. Colin. Yeah, no problem. And as we do every time, I just want to quickly wrap up with a few of the news items we'll be tracking in the in the weeks to come. Uh, Maine on, on the CMP corridor issue, uh, Maine DEP is going to be holding a hearing on November 22nd on the suspension of CMP's permit for the for the quarter, you know, as I mentioned, we've called on them to suspend that permit immediately. They announced this hearing after that overwhelming vote. Um, we're going to be keeping the pressure on DEP to stop stop delaying and and take action uh, to stop this uh, construction and 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 also to force CMP to restore the lands that they've damaged. Um, uh, Wolfden Resources, that's the mining company that pulled its application for a proposed mine near. Baxter State Park because they had all sorts of errors in it um, uh, uh, is is continues to sort of tease that it might uh, it's still interested in mining. I know they're exploring a potential mine in Pembroke too. They've been in the news about that. Um, we posted a guest blog post by Chief Maggie Dana of the Passamaquoddy Tribe about their fir firm opposition to Wolfden's activities in Pembroke. Of course, we're going to be tracking Wolfden. Uh, because um, we've got to continue to view proposals from them with a high level of concern because they've got this demonstrated, well, really incompetence uh, and unreliability. So uh, definitely don't have a place in Maine, um, especially in mining. Um, and finally, as we were just talking about, we're going to continue to watch what's going on in Congress. We're going to continue to be urging our delegation and asking you all to urge our delegation to support the Build Back Better Act. That includes, you know, what would be the single biggest investment in climate action in U.S. history. So we got to get that over the finish line, right, Jack? Um, 
But but before we go, I just wanted to mention that uh, finally, NRCM just dropped some sweet new merch just in time for the colder weather. We've got some beanies for you and your friends or your family, blaze orange for the hunting season and gray if you prefer that. Um, so, you know, hop onto our website, go visit our store. You can, you can get those just in time for the, for winter. Uh, thanks again to everybody for listening. Thanks Jack for joining us. Uh, and if you like what you heard today, please just, uh, you know, share it with your friends and family and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast listening apps. To learn more about NRCM, please visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NRCM Environment. Until next time, thanks for your interest, attention, and involvement in the collective efforts by Maine people to protect the unique woods, waters, and wildlife of our state. Thanks again.